You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. I'm Jessica Matthews, president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And it's my pleasure to welcome you this morning to this conversation on the future of one of the most important relationships uh, for the United States, the U.S.-India relationship. We're honored to have as our special guest the Foreign Secretary of India, Ambassador Rajan Matai, who brings to this post a long and distinguished history of public service. He joined the Indian Foreign Service in 1974, and since then he served in capitals all over the world, from Tehran to Tel Aviv, and most recently as Ambassador to Paris, before his appointment as Foreign Secretary in 2011. We uh, here at Carnegie are fortunate to have hosted many of Ambassador Matai's predecessors, uh, including India's current envoy to the United States, Ambassador Rao. This legacy is a sign, I think, of the deep ties that we've developed here at Carnegie with India and in India. We've been fortunate to have leading scholars, Ashley Tellis, George Perkovich, here for many years working on the subcontinent. Um, and in this past year, we have um, drastically expanded our South Asia program uh, with the addition of Frederick Grar, who is now directing the program here, Sarah Chase, and Milan Vashnev, uh, all of whom are working on uh, doing serious scholarship on India and the rest of the subcontinent. Um, we are uh, working hard and eagerly looking forward to opening uh, Carnegie Center in New Delhi in 2013, and we very much appreciate the help and the advice that we've received from senior leaders in the Indian government on this important step. India's relationship with the United States is deeply important for both countries. In President Obama's words, the relationship between the United States and India, bound by our shared interests and values, will be one of the defining partnerships of the 21st century. And it's appropriate that Secretary, Foreign Secretary Matai is, I think, the third uh, Foreign Secretary who will be meeting with um, uh, Secretary Kerry in his new position. Uh, so just at the outset of, uh, as he develops his agenda, it's appropriate um, uh, and a sign of the importance of the relationship, the timing of this visit. It is, of course, a defining moment for the region um, from the war in Afghanistan to the territorial disputes in East Asia, the U.S. and India have a myriad of overlapping interests and a crucial role to play together in shaping Asia's future. So we're delighted to have the Foreign Secretary join us this morning to share his perspective on the deepening strategic partnership between the United States and India. Uh, we will have time after his remarks for questions. Um, only he says only comfortable questions, uh, and uh, because after all, in India, you never have uncomfortable questions, right? Uh, but please join me in welcoming Foreign Secretary Matai. Thank you very much, President Jessica Matthews, uh, friends of India and the United States, distinguished ladies and gentlemen. Uh, since the President of the United States has already described the relationship as a, a defining one, uh, I've decided to call the title of my 
presentation today, um, somewhat more modestly, shall I say, a 21st century partnership for peace, prosperity, and progress. Well, thank you for this opportunity to share some thoughts with you on a theme that broadly takes up the conversation from where I left it last year in this great city. And as I did last year, let me say that it is remarkable how much has changed in our relationship since I was here a quarter of a century ago in the Indian Embassy in Washington. The theme, I think, is therefore timely. Are we on track so that one of the young diplomats in your embassy in Delhi or ours in Washington could find a quarter century from now that another positive paradigm shift has taken place? I wouldn't assume anyone can see up to 2038, but I hope to suggest some ideas to take stock of where the relationship is and to consider the way forward as a new administration establishes itself in the United States so that we do keep on track. In doing so, I trust I will not be accused of plagiarism as your esteemed institution has recently prepared a paper by my friend Ashley Tellis with the subheading that encapsulates the task at hand. The subtitle was Sustaining the Transformation in U.S.-India Relations. The headline, of course, was eye-catching, Opportunities Unbound. But headlines often leave one wondering, like the one in the newspaper which said, Squad Helps Dog Bite Victim. Not all readers clearly saw whether dog bite was an adjective or pondered over the squad's assistance to the dog. <laughs> anyway, for me, the subject is clear. I am part of the squad called upon to sustain the remarkable transformation that has brought US and India closer together than we have ever been in the past, and I deem this an extraordinary privilege. To an audience such as this, I do not need to dwell on history or the historical nature of this transformation. But it is worth emphasizing that the nature of this change has been unprecedented. The centerpiece was the India-US civil nuclear arrangement and all that went into it and has since emerged from it. The problem, of course, is that everything since that definitive moment tends to be compared with the audacity of what we dared to do together in putting this arrangement in place. This places a somewhat unfair strain of expectation, but I think it is also misplaced. Because the truth of it is that much that has happened since is equally significant in the game of nations in which we have evolved a new normal in the relationship. And let me cite a few instances of what I mean by the new normal. Going beyond the regular exchanges between our heads of state and government, both bilaterally and in all major multilateral events. The strategic dialogue, which is held annually with unprecedented levels of ministerial participation on both sides. It is now normal that we have over 100 visits at the senior official and higher level exchanges per year. It is normal that our dialogue architecture covers the gamut of governmental activity from social sector measures to trade, global financial policy coordination, from energy to defense, counterterrorism, and homeland security. At our interdepartmental review meeting, which we held in the MEA in Delhi in the beginning of January, we identified over 30 dialogue mechanisms connecting almost all major departments of our government. 
if you want to know more about it, the architect of that review is sitting here in front of me. That's Vikram Swami, who is the Joint Secretary dealing with the Americas. It is now entirely normal that our foreign offices consult each other on a wide range of global and regional challenges. Already we have had three rounds of a trilateral between the US, Japan, and India, and several rounds of bilateral consultations on East Asia. Just two days ago, we hosted the second round of our trilateral dialogue with Afghanistan. That is the US, India, and Afghanistan. We hold regular consultations on strategic security issues covering non-proliferation, disarmament, and export controls. We are working together closely on India's membership of the four export control, multilateral export control regimes. We hope to expand these dialogues to cover many more areas of interest, and that is also now normal. In short, in a few years, consultation has become a habit. We have created a comfortable space to exchange opinions as trusted partners with both candor and often convergence. And this is not just because we enjoy talking, that we do, or being connected. As India's horizons expand with the growth of our strategic and economic interests, we will need to talk regularly about real-world concerns to the U.S., which, from our perspective, continues to have both critical interests and a vital presence across the entire globe. This is as it should be in a partnership that is genuinely strategic. And there is no hint here, however, of taking lessons from each other. As we are told, the uh, let's be very neutral, the Christian turning to the Jewish friend and saying, well, you know, we took the Ten Commandments from you 2,000 years ago. And the Jewish friend turned around and said, yes, but you didn't keep them. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I do not suggest that the partnership is already at a stage of maturity or that we are in complete accord on all issues. If that was so, I, and perhaps some of you, would be looking for other avenues of gainful employment. I'm aware that converting the civil nuclear agreement into the expected commercial arrangements is still a work in progress. Some, some, see it, some see the work, some see the progress. In a more general sense, it needs recognition that it is probably not in the nature of either of our nations to be in complete agreement with any other on many issues. Someone said we are perhaps not on the same page. Since I love mixing metaphors, let me say, even if we cannot be on the same line of the script on all occasions, both of us are increasingly willing to read from the same score, even if we do not always play the notes the same way. I want to reiterate this point because the mutuality of benefit in our partnership is measured in more than merely dollars and cents. Important as those are, it is also measured in a growing realization that the rise of a democratic, pluralistic, and liberal India is in the fundamental interests of the United States. It is not called the peaceful rise of India because it is self-evidently peaceful. And that a strong, prosperous, innovative, globally engaged United States is fundamentally in India's interest. We in India have no evangelical tradition, but we share the conception that the spread of democracy, open societies, and rule-based multilateral frameworks will shape a better world order from our point of view. At the more mundane level of how we see India's growing interests converging with the US strategic outlook, let me outline a few broad areas. I'll start with our own continent, Asia. 
I think I should address a misconception that has secured the force of conviction through multiple reiteration in some quarters. India does not harbor misgivings over your re-engaging or rebalancing or indeed pivoting towards Asia. While I recognize that the policy is still evolving, enhanced American economic, diplomatic and maritime engagement in the development of the Indo-Pacific region takes forward what is a recognized part of independent Asia's historical experience. Moreover, it synchronizes with India's own enhanced engagement with our extended neighborhood. The most recent example of this extended engagement was the very successful India-ASEAN commemorative summit, commemorating 10 years of our having worked together, which was held in Delhi with all the leaders, uh, apart from the President of the Philippines who couldn't make it, coming uh, to us. This policy of, uh, of synchronization is premised on our conviction that regional connectivity, economic integration, development, and cooperative security are the surest guarantors of peace and stability across our region. This is the spirit in which we have engaged in the East Asia Summit process and in the past discussions on the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It was with this in mind that we in India worked to bring the US into what is called the Indian Ocean Region Association of Regional Cooperation, IORARC, as an observer. That happened in November in Delhi last year. Our engagement with partners in Southeast Asia and beyond must contribute to the creation of a mutually acceptable regional security and economic architecture. Such architecture must be based on commonly accepted international rules. It should facilitate respect for international law, freedom of navigation, maritime commerce, and communications. We are happy to work with all our partners towards evolving a larger regional architecture for the whole of Asia. By virtue of our geography and our historical connections, we have vital interests both in the heartland and in the rimlands of Asia. It is useful, therefore, that in our neighborhood and beyond, we have an increasingly improved dialogue with the US. We welcome the increased frequency of our consultation on the regional issues to which I referred, which have a lot of mutual interest and the improved texture of these conversations. Afghanistan is one of the key areas in which we need to continue to hold close and candid consultations. It is also an area in which there is greater need for us to be absolutely frank with each other. To start with, we sincerely respect and honor the significant sacrifices made by our American and Afghan partners in securing and reconstructing Afghanistan. India, too, has given lives and has spent almost $2 billion in reconstruction assistance, and we intend to remain engaged with Afghanistan and its other international partners. We continue to support efforts to bring Afghanistan into regional connectivity frameworks. We are also helping lead the effort to transform the economy of Afghanistan, including in its evolution to a trade and investment-based economy. Now, why is India involved? Very simply, history has taught us that whatever happens in Afghanistan has and will continue to affect our security directly and materially. We have not forgotten the terrorist havens that targeted us, springing up as Afghanistan descended into chaos in the 1990s. And obviously, we do not want 
that to happen again. It is for this reason that the internationally accepted red lines must be respected in whatever reconciliation models are being considered. So also, actions in support of the political transition should not undermine Afghan institutions of governance. We all need a credible government there after 2014 as well. But most of all, we are yet to see any evidence that supports the notion of a dividing line separating Al-Qaeda from other terrorist and extremist groups, or indeed that these groups and those who support them have either had an epiphany or made a real strategic reassessment of their objectives. To us, it makes little sense to draw lines of distinction that most of these groups or their sponsors are, are themselves not prepared to do, at least not just yet, either in word or deed. In this context, I cannot overemphasize the point that terrorism is and will remain a preeminent security challenge for both our countries. Our convergence on the source and the nature of the threat in our region has never been greater. It is therefore a challenge that provides us an opportunity for enhanced, cooper enhanced cooperation in combating terror and protecting our people from it. This is even more of an imperative today as we move into a period of significant uncertainty in the next few years. Behind this regional concern lies a general conviction which we have about combating terror and which led us to pledge support of about a million dollars at the donor conferences even on the situation in Mali, which is quite distant from us. Not surprisingly, counterterrorism is a key dimension of our bilateral partnership. Quite obviously, it also has strong public resonance. It is an area of our work which we must continue to strengthen, including in exchanging information and working to bring terrorists to justice. We are aware of the specificities of legal procedure and their requirements but we need to commit to the goal of assisting our authorities in the pursuit of justice. Cybersecurity, to which the President of the United States made a reference, and counter-piracy are also areas in which our two countries can work together, particularly since the terrorist threat very often folds into these areas of challenge. We already have some working groups dealing with cybersecurity issues, and we feel there is much more that we can achieve together, including in operational aspects of managing and mitigating these challenges. Ladies and gentlemen, further afield on our west, we are faced with a complex situation in the Gulf region and Iran. Our relations with the GCC countries are vital, self-evidently so, with millions of our citizens working there, over five million, and crucial energy, financial, and commercial interests. We have very old ties with Iran, which emerged as a critical and reliable source of oil over many decades. We do have a beneficial relationship covering trade in food, medicine, and other everyday commodities. Yet, we also recognize and emphasize the need for Iran to fulfill its international obligations and to address questions raised in the IAEA about its nuclear program to restore confidence in the exclusively peaceful nature of that program. We sincerely hope that the talks to be held in Kazakhstan, I believe on the 26th, will make some progress in resolving this issue. From where we are situated, Iran is also an essential element in our access to Afghanistan and in the medium term to Central Asia. 
It affords us the access to Afghanistan that we are prevented from having directly. Iran is also, as I said, in, in that region where we have the vital economic interests tied up with the presence of our citizens. And it is therefore important that we can continue to have quiet bilateral conversations in regard to Iran. We have also shared interests in the democratic development and economic growth in the rest of South Asia. That's a long theme, and I'll, I'll leave it to questions if anyone has them. I would simply say that we have real opportunities ahead for building on these shared interests in that region. In the wider Middle East, we share concerns over the crisis in Syria and the instability in northern Africa. India has supported the democratic aspirations of the people of the region, but have been cautious about externally enforced change. In general, we believe that external involvement only fuels instability. In effect, the search for military solutions to political challenges has created many humanitarian crises and has pushed the region on a slippery slope towards civil strife and, as we now see, the spread of weaponry into dangerous hands. Looking eastward of India, we are working to enhance the full range of our relationship with Myanmar, enhance our historic links with that neighbor, and take forward our shared interests in a contemporary setting. We are encouraged by the changes in internal and external policies of that country. We continue our dialogue with the government. We have had a number of interactions with the president and with the speaker. And also our engagement with Do Aung San Suu Kyi, who paid a visit to us in November. The historic visit of President Obama a few months ago, in fact, just a day or two after Aung San Suu Kyi went back from India, and the easing of sanctions on that country should help Myanmar take forward the process of re-engagement with the world and then restore its historic role in the region. Even on global and extra-regional issues, ladies and gentlemen, we are developing the habit of broader cooperation. Our Prime Minister and President Obama agreed in 2010 that we would begin to work together in the trilateral mode in capacity enhancement projects in Africa and also in Afghanistan. We have now put in place the software for an IT-enabled open government platform using IT to bring open governance to the people in joint partnership with the government of Rwanda. And we intend to expand this soon in partnership with Ghana. Similarly, we are working with USAID to offer agricultural training programs at Indian institutes for specialists from Kenya, Malawi, and Liberia. One of India's leading women's self-help agencies, SEWA, is working with USAID and the government of Afghanistan to offer train-the-trainers courses to Afghan women so that women can be empowered to earn livelihoods in their country. Ladies and gentlemen, what does all this mean to our bilateral relationship? Well, quite a lot, actually. It feeds into and binds on growing convergences around. Defense is a key pillar of our bilateral cooperation. It bears mentioning that from a state where this trade was, to borrow Ambassador Blackwell's inimitable phrase, flat as a chapati, there is today nearly $9 billion in bilateral defense trade. Now, I dined out on this figure when I spoke in Washington last year also. But it will grow over time. It will assuredly, it will assuredly not be stuck like the chapati jokes. And this was actually originally an ethnic joke, but now we'll, in this politically correct age, we'll just say Indian A and Indian B. 
So Indian A turns to Indian B and asks him, how many chapatis can you eat on an empty stomach? And Indian B says, 25. So he says, well, please come to my house tomorrow and I'll test you. So he does so and he goes there and he eats all 25 chapatis. And turns around and says, see, didn't I tell you I could do it? So Indian A turns around very wisely and says, well, you know, as soon as you finish the first chapati, your stomach was no longer empty. So you have failed the test. <laughs> so they both laughed. So Indian B goes to Indian C and he says, how many chapatis can you eat on an empty stomach? And Indian C says, 30. Indian B says, well, if you had said 25, I would have told you a really nice joke. <laughs> our armed forces, jokes aside, are developing the habit of closer cooperation through training together and through bilateral military exercises. Today, our armed forces conduct the maximum number of military exercises they do with any foreign partner, that is with the United States. We are currently in the midst of an effort to find ways in which we resolve process-related rigidities in our respective systems. We do need to find ways to make procedures more compatible if the partnership is to evolve, to develop to mutual benefit. We also hope to find ways in which we can genuinely transform our defense partnership by significantly strengthening the technological dimension of the partnership so that it has a mutually beneficial impact on the development of India's defense industry. Trade and economic cooperation continue to increase. Both services and goods, trades, goods trade are up over $100 billion now annually. And we are hopeful that in the near future, our tra bilateral trade policy forum can be held. A meeting is indeed overdue. Just before I walked in here, I was reminded that in Ashley's book, there is a reference to uh, space as another area where we could cooperate. And I, I commend that suggestion. Uh, we have, in fact, developed very significant capabilities which are entirely compatible with those of the United States for a significant partnership. It is essential that we re-engage in a more focused manner, especially because of the changed policy environment in India. As you know, the government has announced a range of reform measures to make India a more attractive investment destination. The effort has been to address a long-standing demand from our own business most of all, for second and third generation reforms, which have been pushed through with significant political will and which we hope will evoke a suitable response, not only from our own industry, but from our foreign partners. These new measures offer significant openings in single and multi-brand retail, aviation, and the financial sector. Some measures have already been rolled out and companies have started opening stores. Brooks Brothers, slightly above my pay grade, that one, but Fossil and Gantt, these are the other two names. IKEA of Sweden has also obtained clearance to set up its own uh, units in India. The government has also pushed forward on raising the ceiling on foreign direct investment in financial services as well, though this last item requires parliamentary approval. The effort is in place and we hope for a positive outcome. Meanwhile, however, we hear from our U.S. partners that there are still elements on which clarity is awaited, at least in terms of new policies in force. Ultimately, these are business decisions. However, these waters can only be tested by taking the plunge in what has consistently been proved to be a large and profitable market. I do recall having once seen a study in which they, the researcher was hard put to find a serious multinational company which actually lost money in India. 
I should also underline that the process of reform and policy change is most sustainable when it is recognized that the policy measures India is taking lie in its own interests. We will do what we need to do for our own sake. However, it should be recognized that what we do will naturally create benefit for our partners. We also hear complaints on both sides on a number of matters. Procurement policies that are intended to promote industrial growth in India are raised with us. Just as the US has also identified industry as the key driver of employment, we too need to do so. The simple fact is we cannot harness the demographic dividend promised by our young population without developing industry. The services sector alone cannot help us absorb millions of young people. On our side too, we have concerns regarding non-immigrant visas and our inability to initiate even a conversation about a totalization agreement. This is necessary, we feel, as it would begin to address the concerns of the law-abiding, tax-paying expatriate Indians working in the US. It is this group of people who serve at the same time as the strongest and most committed advocates for our relationship in both countries. And this is particularly difficult to explain when we have concluded such agreements with other major G8 economies, including recently with Canada. We note your deadline to conclude negotiations for a trans-Pacific partnership and your plans now announced for discussing a comprehensive transatlantic partnership. And at the same time, we are moving forward with comprehensive economic cooperation agreements with ASEAN, Singapore, Japan, and Korea. And we are also in dialogue with the EU. We have been talking about a bilateral investment treaty as well, but not necessarily with the due sense of urgency. Four meetings since negotiations started in 2007 does not suggest a great deal of haste. Much as it might surprise, we want this as much as you do, because it is also of interest to us. Ladies and gentlemen, Important as they are, market access issues in goods and services can either be seen in perspective or they can be made the defining narrative. While we must work to sort out these challenges, it is not in our interest to let such issues define the relationship. This is why we have proposed to create an ad hoc clearinghouse mechanism to discuss market access issues in the trade policy forum. I believe that we also need to find a new positive narrative that can bind our countries closer together. One such opportunity, I feel, is in the energy sector. Without assured access to energy inputs in sufficient quantities, we will not be able to sustain our economic development. Therefore, an enduring India-US partnership in energy should not only cover technological and regulatory aspects, but also establish commercial partnerships in energy. As the US evolves from being an importer of energy to a net exporter of energy, we hope that we can develop mutually beneficial partnerships in the hydrocarbon sector, in renewable energy, biofuels, and in new energy efficient technologies. In each of these cases, there can be immediate benefits for both sides. Let me cite a few examples. Your interest in exporting natural gas and intention to export to non-FTA countries, even if just agreed upon, would help stabilize internationally traded LNG prices, which are at historic highs. Indian investment in the oil and gas sectors will not only help add to energy transportation linkages, but also to refining and shipment facilities here. Long-term partnerships between us in energy will also help us in India diversify our sources of supply much more globally. 
biofuels from non-food crops and energy efficiencies are two areas which are already identified in the bilateral energy dialogue. Grid management, self-healing and smart grid technologies, and the capacity to bring renewable energy onto grids could be mutually beneficial areas of exchange. Our regulations and processes involving large projects are being re-examined by a cabinet committee on investment. Among the first which the cabinet committee has taken up are those relating to energy, specifically to oil and gas. Progress is being made on simplifying the approvals process for oil and gas exploration blocks. US companies have well-recognized strengths in this industry, and we hope that as we move ahead, we will be able to draw in some new players into India. I believe that the exciting new finds off the coast of East Africa and Northwest Australia will lead to greater interest in other areas of the Indian Ocean Basin. Then the extraordinary transformation caused by the shale gas boom could also bring larger quantities of US coal into a global market facing supply constraints. So as I see it, there is much that we can talk about. Education is also a strategic area for our partnership. In being part of the reform and upgradation of higher learning infrastructure in India, you will help support modernization of the supply line of trained workers on the other. Think about it. Millions of young Indians will be coming onto the job market in the next few decades. The US can, through partnership with new educational institutions in India, enable them to be productively and gainfully employed. The education partnership can span the entire range of options. At one level, we would like to create mutually beneficial partnership in state-of-the-art institutions of learning, these could include engineering institutes, management institutes, pure science research facilities, and social science colleges. This would also provide a base upon which we develop our growing partnership in science, technology, and innovation, and in fulfillment of the vision of our Prime Minister and President Obama in what is called the Singh Obama Knowledge Initiative. We also need to develop specifically immediately employable skills. We need better community colleges in India. Earlier this month, we made a good beginning with a special event focusing on creating and explaining how community colleges work and how they could work in India. As many as 12 American community colleges were represented for which Under Secretary Son and Shine visited India. Ladies and gentlemen, let me endeavor to draw my presentation to a few clear conclusions and recommendations on the way forward. First, from our perspective, closer and more effective cooperation between us on terrorism is critical. There is strong public support in India for this aspect of our partnership. Obviously, this has an impact on our bilateral and trilateral consultations in Afghanistan and the region. We recognize and welcome your enduring commitment to the security and stability of Afghanistan. We hope that our concerns will also factor into your calculations. Second, the relationship between us must now stand squarely on its own merits. It has taken decades for us to stop viewing each other from the prism of each other's relationships with third countries. As you recalibrate your presence in Afghanistan, we hope that the transformation of our relationship can accelerate based on the unique merits of what each side brings to the table. Third, we need to do more to make defense cooperation part of the new normal. We can do so by finding simple process solutions to enable your defense companies to make value for money bids to meet our defense requirements. It would also help for us to evolve our relationship towards co-design and joint production of defense material. In short, let's actually move to make this happen rather than inviting each other to move first. 
Fourth, let's recognize that trade and economic cooperation must be more about finding fault with each other's policies. Both of us need significant investment in industry and manufacture and the jobs that they create. We must find ways to work more closely together in this context. There will be value for US companies to engage in our efforts to build several industrial ecosystems in India in a manner which is compatible with each other's market or employment interests. We believe the US industrial and manufacturing se sector could witness a very significant revival led by your energy and chemical industries. We ourselves expect to return to a high GDP growth trajectory, and by high we mean over 7.5%, in a year's time or a little over that. The reforms in our economy will be pursued, and we expect that the policy emphasis on manufacturing will start showing tangible results. As India industrializes, the scope for beneficial cooperation will only increase, whether in terms of R&D, technology agreements, integration of manufacturing processes, or trade. Fifth, we cannot allow the differences we have in trade in goods and movement of services to dominate the discourse. We have at the same time to create forums to discuss these issues openly and with a forward-looking approach. Sixth, energy and education are strategic openings for the US to invest in the future of India. As many of our American friends remind us, enabling the rise of India is or should be a strategic end in itself for the US. These are sectors in which the US would be part of such a strategy. Seventh, we have begun to work together well in a number of multilateral fora. The G20 is a case in point. We appreciate the support of the US for our membership in various multilateral export control regimes. There is also room for us to do more together as our interests coincide with yours in the maintenance of a strong and stable global and regional architecture. However, to keep this process on rails, it is important that the signaling remains positive. We have been told that the US has placed a strategic bet on India's rise. Therefore, it hardly seems like a good game to accept strategic arguments from those working to make you lose your bet. And then we need to display towards each other more of that rare commodity, patience. You have demonstrated that in abundant measure, listening to me for half an hour of talk without a single slogan or a catchy phrase to explain how much progress we feel we have made. But the evolution of our relationship cannot be conducted in fitful leaps from one transformative moment to another. Instead, we must recognize that the process of drawing us closer together will need consistent attention, regular consultation, regular cooperation, and continued high-level engagement. It is essential that we continue to invest in our engagement at the highest level ladies and gentlemen, and this is my final point here, because this partnership is really in our respective national interests. Just this morning, I read with great interest the outstanding case made yesterday by Secretary Kerry at the University of Virginia on why the resources spent on foreign policy are in the fundamental interests of your great country. And he then referred specifically to the middle-class Indians which made jobs here secure. And it not only struck me that the case he made could quite easily have been made by my own minister, hopefully with some impact on our finance minister. But equally, that our mutual investment in the India-US partnership is actually all about making our people safer and more prosperous. It is also about jointly addressing the growing complexities of a world in which the people of India and their American partners face many of the same global challenges. And it is working towards addressing this strategic reality that our partnership will be defined in the decades ahead. 
We look forward to keeping our leadership engaged in this vital relationship, both at the level of the two governments, but also with the support of this remarkable partnership, which is all of you here today. Thank you. We have a microphone, so please wait. Please introduce yourself to the, the secretary. And uh, we have 15 minutes, so let's begin right here, please. So, right to Thank you. I enjoyed the presentation, highly informative. You touched very important subjects on the, in the speech. Two items are very interesting, cybersecurity and defense cooperation between the two. As you know, China and America has a cybersecurity issue recently going on. Similarly, India's defense equipment needs modernization. What do you think about these two important topics and how India-U.S. cooperation can increase? Thank you. Would you like to take a couple before we, right in front here. Okay. Right, just get the right. mic behind you. Yeah, this is a, a defense oriented also, uh, Bill Tucker. Uh, we represent uh, a number of financial services companies that have gone into India with, uh, with apparent ease. But uh, the defense companies have a, have a problem, our defense companies do, in that, that they have to hire someone, get an office, before they even do anything. And uh, that's a barrier to our companies entering the country. And so if you could ease that barrier, I think uh, the, uh, the U.S. defense companies would explore the market at least you know, you know, more frequently. And we'll take one more right here, and then we'll, then we'll move over. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Minister, thank you for that excellent and really wide-ranging uh, presentation. I come, Tom Rowe, from the EU Asia Centre in Brussels. The one part of your speech where I was very strong was relating to economic and trade and uh, relations, where uh, unusually I would say that the tone of your discussion, probably if you were making it in Brussels, would be more positive than it was now here in Washington. Right now, India is engaged in deep discussions on an FTA with the European Union. The next few months will be quite critical given the political calendar. I wonder if you could say a few comments about that, and also given the fact that the EU and the US will be trying over the next two years to create a transatlantic free trade agreement. To what extent does that lever India and other big players more into a discussion, both with the US and the EU, on these matters? Thanks. Well, thank you. Uh, cybersecurity is definitely an area where I think there's a lot that India and the U.S. could do together. We have, in fact, begun a series of cybersecurity dialogues with a very large number of uh, partners. Um, and I, I do agree. I think this is an area where we need to engage. There are, as it happens when these subjects emerge, a very large number of players on both sides who are involved. Involved, And I think the first thing we need to do is to identify a, a structure through which you can begin the dialogue. But certainly, I think uh, definitively, this is one area which we uh, in India would be looking forward to. On the defense cooperation, I think I, I did try in my presentation to say just how much we could do. Uh, beyond the, the two or three uh, areas which are already functioning, which are regular exchanges and consultations between our defense authorities, regular defense exercises, and we have now defense procurement. 
Beyond this now, we have to step up to the joint R&D, joint production. I think that is the direction in which we need to go. I am a little puzzled by the question which came from the other gentleman who said that you need to get an office and hire someone before you go in. Uh, I would have thought that if you are going in, it will be useful to have an office and someone to work for you. But I, I see that if that is a precondition, then I, I, need to, I need to look at this a little more closely. I'm not very familiar with all the rules regarding defense. Is this could be part of the offsets arrangement, or is it for any defense company? It's for any defense company. But before you do anything, you have to hire someone and open an office before you can even contact defense officials. Okay. This is something on which I'll need to uh, come back with a little more information. Perhaps my colleague here might be able to answer it. India, EU, yes, absolutely. Um, I think uh, I, I would be, uh, I think, remiss if I conveyed the impression uh, that um, with our economic relationship with the United States that I was uh, trying to sound as if we had a series of complaints. It's not, in fact, what I was trying to do was to say that with all trading partners, inevitably, you get involved in market access issues and in arguments over one particular aspect of trade or the other. And what I was hoping was that since the overall narrative is good, we need to focus on that and put all these basket of issues into something like a trade policy forum and deal with them separately. But India, EU, yes, we have made substantial progress. We, I believe there's going to be a ministerial in April where I hope we will be able to finally clinch a deal. Uh, we have made a great deal of progress in matters relating to industry and agriculture. On services, there are still some areas where that gap still remains to be bridged. But certainly, we're giving it a lot of attention. We are conscious that uh, uh, negotiating time and negotiating attention, uh, you have the same set of people who are debating these issues with all their partners. So we need to conclude this, and uh, we certainly will be looking for a win-win proposition as early as April. All right, we have a group right here. Hello, uh, my name is Udith Thakur. I'm from uh, Brookings next door. Um, I really hate to put you on the spot here, um, but this just came up, uh, and it has to do with what I was going to ask earlier. There has most recently been reported by the Times of India and now by Al Jazeera and NDTV that there have been bomb blasts in Hyderabad, of which there have been 11 reported dead and now injured or rising. This gets to my question of uh, what coherent strategy for counterterrorism has been developed within the government to address the growing issue of homegrown terrorism? And right next to, yeah, and then we'll take the one back. Hi, I'm Vineet. I'm a graduate student. So what is your opinion on the latest developments that's ha that is happening in Maldives? Thank you. And right behind there, making sure... Yes, thanks. Thanks. Uh, I'm Sean Tandon. I'm a journalist with the AFP News Agency. Just wanted to expand a little bit on your remarks in Afghanistan. We're saying it's misguided to, um, to draw the distinction between al-Qaeda and other groups. Do you think it's wrong, therefore, to try to reach uh, a peace uh, settlement with the Taliban? Is that a misguided effort? Is that, uh, would that be useful to try to attempt that? Here we go. Uh, well, first of all, I think the, the terrible um, bomb blasts in Hyderabad do underline what I I think, emphasized throughout the presentation, which is that terrorism remains one of the most serious threats we face. And this is one of the issues on which the United States and India have worked together very closely. Uh, I'm not sure there is any evidence that it could be homegrown terrorism. We have had a number of uh, attacks which have been uh, traced 
to inspiration or leadership outside the country. I don't know yet. I think we'll have to wait till the investigation reports are being uh, completed. But counterterrorism certainly has been uh, uh, attracting the attention of our government at the highest levels for a considerable period of time. Uh, we have developed a number of new mechanisms, both in terms of intelligence, in terms of the coordination between the central government and the states, because policing is ultimately a state subject, and in the uh, forensics, checking this through and, and working out uh, mechanisms. But uh, like every other country, uh, we are on the front lines of terrorism, uh, we perhaps a little more than others, and we need to reinforce our efforts, and we will certainly be hoping to work very closely with our U.S. partners in dealing with this. I would also say that uh, in terms of um, uh, the kind of um, cooperation, we are talking not only about um, actual, the actual dealing with terrorism when it occurs, but also uh, intelligence sharing to see if it can be prevented. These are areas in which we are certainly going to be uh, expending a lot of attention. Uh, as regards, I'll go straight to the next the Afghanistan question. What I was trying to say was that drawing this distinction is not, is not clear yet. Uh, we have seen really no evidence to suggest that there is a very clear uh, difference between those who, um, who call themselves Al-Qaeda, work for Al-Qaeda, who are sponsoring them, and the other networks on the ground in Afghanistan. We are just suggesting a degree of caution till it becomes clear that that kind of distinction is actually something that can be made. Um, right now, we don't see that. Uh, if it were to emerge, yes, that is something we could talk about. The coming to the Maldives, uh, we are faced with a very piquant situation where, as you know, the former president is now, I think, on his seventh or eighth night and day in sitting in our uh, High Commission or our embassy there. We have uh, simply taken, he's simply walked in. There's been no legal definition of what he's doing there. He's just a guest. He's uh, spending some time there. As far as we are concerned, there are two aspects to the issue. One is there is a, a legal uh, system which is pursuing him on which being an internal matter of the Maldives we really have nothing to say no real jurisdiction there but we have made the political point that <laughs> Maldives is moving to an election it has announced I think September 7th as the date of the next election and uh, the election to be free and fair must be inclusive and all the, the major political parties must be free to participate and choose a nominee of their uh, selection. Uh, this is the, the basic position we have taken. We are discussing the matter with the government of Maldives and with uh, former President Nasheed. We hope we can find some kind of an amicable solution. Okay, let's go to the back and uh, gentlemen here. Uh, Minister, I'm Konrad Major from the Embassy of Poland. You mentioned in your speech that you have very efficient dialogue with the United States on East Asia. Could you tell us what kind of agenda uh, this dialogue covers usually? Uh, I guess it's not only China, it's about maritime dispute security. Just a bit elaborate, if you could, on agenda of this dialogue. Thank you. Well, this is part of the usual foreign ministry to foreign ministry, sometimes with other ministries also involved. Uh, discussions relating to how you view developments in Eastern Asia. 
Uh, we also have a separate, as I said, uh, trilateral dialogue between Japan, India, and the U.S. Uh, but none of this is is uh, is aimed at any other country. It's simply a sharing of views, sharing of opinions, uh, and some some uh, issues of coordination where you have, say, a joint project. Uh, one particular area we are interested in is in Myanmar, uh, because Myanmar has simply emerged. It has huge needs. We are working there on a large number of projects, uh, road building, things like that. If there is an interest in the other countries in joining in some of those projects, we'd be very happy to cooperate. Uh, but that's, that's broadly it. It started with uh, discussions relating to uh, Southeast Asia and then broadened to East Asia and Myanmar. Let the, the last question be the lady right there. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sabina Mata. I used to be uh, based in your country for four years as a correspondent for German National Radio. I've just returned from a multi-week visit, actually. Um, sir, I'm surprised that I haven't heard you mention... Pakistan as a sponsor or at least harbor of uh, terrorism in your country as well as in Afghanistan, where it's a major irritant to American forces. So where do you see opportunities for cooperation between your two countries there in that respect? Well, I think the <coughs> subtext of what I was saying was that there are many sponsors and there are many safe havens for terrorism. And uh, it is not my intention to, to, to get into a a specific name game, but clearly we have a, a regular discussion with Afghanistan, uh, and Afghanistan is certainly concerned about the presence of uh, safe havens across its border. We have also a regular dialogue with the United States in regard to Afghanistan, and as I referred, we have even a trilateral dialogue. But most of it is actually focused on dealing with uh, our bilateral issues and how they, they mesh together. In regard to our own dialogue with Pakistan, uh, as you know, we have been um, a, a kind of dialogue on different themes and different subjects. But Afghanistan has still not become one of those uh, issues, um, not because we are unwilling to speak. Uh, certainly, I think the, the question of how Afghanistan will evolve in the future will, to a large extent, depend on, as I said, the maintenance of the red lines of the international community. And if you read the conclusions both in Istanbul and in Bonn and Tokyo last year, it's very clear that there has to be an end to the terrorist attacks which are inflicted on Afghanistan. That is a sine qua non for restoring peace and stability there. Uh, the Foreign Secretary has a packed schedule today, as you can imagine, and uh, an important meeting at 11 o'clock at the State Department, so we need to let him go. Please join me in thanking him for a wonderful presentation.